So this afternoon I'd like to share with you some reflections on actually the two lines that we find in what we've been chanting in the in the Genjo Koan. It's in the, the second paragraph here. And it's these two lines to to carry yourself forward and experience myriad things is delusion. That myriad things come forth and experience themselves is awakening. So you might hear just in these two sentences, Dogen is giving us these definitions of what is delusion, what's the experience of delusion, and also the opposite, what's the experience of awakening. And I, I hope to tie this into what we're doing here on retreat and also to your lives and in a way that hopefully you'll be able to relate to it in some kind of manner. And I want to begin just with this first sentence again, this to carry yourself forward and experience myriad things is delusion. How to understand this? And as a way of getting an initial kind of feeling sense of it, I'd like to share with you a poem. It's a poem by Tony Hoagland, who quite interestingly is, uh, actually was a Zen practitioner. He still might be. The way I know this is because there's someone in our Sangha, um, who used to be his partner. And when they were partners many, 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 many years ago, they were dabbling with uh, Zen practice and doing retreats together and things like that. So there's a poem of his, it's uh, titled Phone Call. <coughs> he begins, maybe I overdid it when I called my father an enemy of humanity. That might have been a little strongly put, a slight over-exaggeration, an immoderate description of the person who at the moment, 2,000 miles away, holding the telephone receiver six inches from his ear, must have regretted pain for my therapy. <laughs> what I meant was, was that my father was an enemy of my humanity. And what I met behind that was that my father was split into two people, one of them living deep inside of me like a bad king or an incurable disease, blighting my crops, striking down my herds, poisoning my wells. And the other, standing in another time zone, in a kitchen in Wyoming, with bad knees and white hair sprouting from his ears. I don't want to scream forever. I don't want to live without proportion like some kind of infection from the past. So I have to remember the second father, the one whose TV dinner is getting cold while he holds the phone in his left hand and stares blankly out the window where just now the sun is going down and the last fingertips of sunlight are withdrawing from the hills they once touched like a child. Do you hear how he's quote unquote carrying himself forward? 
this idea that he carries about his father that he thinks is the father out there but it's not it's the father in here right and he hurts he harms when he carries forward himself in that way holding that notion of that other person that's on the other side of the phone and we're even given even given a glimpse of the second sentence of what it is to to allow myriad things to come forth and experience themselves oh yeah there's there's my father in wyoming with the bad knees and the tv dinner getting cold oh that that's what it is to actually touch the other the other person oh there's a quality of intimacy of of awakening of wisdom and there what a striking description don't you think of delusion when I paste that on someone else. It's so easy, right? We have so many past experiences sometimes with people that feels like it's so true. Maybe you can relate to this. Do you notice how so often we can live our lives like this? We carry ourselves forward. I carry my ideas about the world and other people forward in this way. And a lot of times that's what gives rise to delusion. So how do you carry yourself forward on retreat? How do you see that happening while you're here at IRC? And if you notice it, it's, it's amazing what the mind can do, the thoughts it can have just about the other yogis, these people that you really even haven't spoken to. <laughs> you see a facial expression or you see them move their body in some kind of way and you feel as if you know what's going on. Has your mind ever had that kind of sense? <laughs> it's really amazing. And then the, I think the wonderful thing about retreat is that we get to be silent so we don't get to act out on those things. <laughs> Not leaving the little notes for people that are probably so wrong. But just to notice, oh, interesting, how the mind Carries these, carries these ideas forward, how I carry myself forward in this way. And we do this just within our minds, not even with the people around here, but just if you bring to mind possibly the stories that have already flitted through your mind on this retreat so far. Because one teacher says, you know, it's like we're always the star of our own movie in there. And have you noticed sometimes you're the hero or you're the tragic character or you're just the person that can't stop planning or worrying or being afraid about this or that. And there it is. Oh, it's the feeling, isn't it? It's the feeling of carrying myself forward. We don't really get anywhere. <laughs> and there's the delusion. And in the poem, you know, you can hear how he overdid it with his father, calling him the enemy of humanity. But I want to point out what I notice about my own mind. We do that to ourselves as well. 
we can carry ourselves forward in a way that's so harmful to ourselves we have some kind of concept of who we are. And I want to point out much of retreat practice is getting to become familiar with the activity of carrying ourselves forward. I need to see delusion in order to wake up. This is so much of what we're doing. As, as uh, Dogen says, actually, I forgot about this in a, a line just after that. Those who have great realization of delusion are Buddhas. That's all Buddhas are. They're seeing how we carry the self forward in all these various ways, like I just mentioned. It's to see that, to see that really clearly. It's the worlds that we create. That's what I mean by this carrying forward. And it can be so subtle, too. Again, an, another very short poem that I think expresses this. This is from Basho. He says, In Kyoto, hearing the cuckoo, I long for Kyoto. You gotta see. Here he is. He's in Kyoto, and he hears the sound of the cuckoo. And there he is. Oh, I, I so long to be in Kyoto and have these experiences. <laughs> we do this sometimes. If you notice that you're you're watching, you're you're seeing the sunset, or you're outside, and you feel like that cool breeze that you could feel today. Wow, this is so great. I mean, it's just so wonderful to be here at IRC, and there I am, lost in the story about being at IRC rather than just being at IRC. <laughs> I'm carrying myself forward rather than simply being there with the experience. That's called grasping. Rather than being with the experience, there's a quality of grasping onto, wanting more of it in some way. Wanting more of Kyoto, even though I'm already in Kyoto. So here it is to get a feeling sense of, of how you carry yourself forward, what I'd call on the individual level. And I want to also show how this intersects with the, the collective or systemic dimensions that we find ourselves situated in. You know, this, you could say, dominant society carries itself forward in certain kinds of ways that is really quite harmful. I remember a while ago I was reading an article in the Washington Post about and I didn't know this about our, our justice system. So when, when there is a, a case, for example, like a case like a wrongful death, death case or a case in which there's been a serious in injury and there is supposed to be compensation for that victim of, or the victim's family, um, what they've noticed, and, and um, this is still quite a legal thing to do, that the way that compensation is figured out um, often they take in the factors of race and gender. So this means that if you are a white male, you would get paid out at a higher rate than if you're a person of color or if you're a woman. So this is something that goes on, you could say, probably on a daily or weekly basis in this society that we live in. a system being carried forward day after day that influences justice in this country. It's a form of delusion. It's the delusion of better than and less than. 
dependent upon one's color of skin or one how one identifies their gender. And, and I want to point out, when I mention these systemic dynamics, it's not like they're out there somewhere. <laughs> it's like some kind of system out there that we're not a part of. I mean, these minds create that system. They are part of that system. And I think this is so important to, to really realize and to see for the practice that we're doing. Actually, Krishnamurti puts it well. He says, if you don't know how your mind reacts, if your mind is not aware of its own activities, you will never find out what society is. You may read books on sociology, study social sciences, but if you don't know how your mind works, you cannot, cannot actually understand what society is. Because your mind is a part of society, it is society. Your reactions, your beliefs, the clothes you wear, the things you do and don't do, and what you think. Society is made up of all of this. It is the replica of what is going on in your mind. So your mind is not apart from society. It is not distinct from your culture, your religion, your various class divisions, from the ambitions and conflicts of the many. There is no you separate from society. This is, you could say, our inheritance. It's the inheritance often when we're talking about these dynamics of the feeling of better than or even the feeling of less than inherited by family, by society, from family, from society. And for me, I think there's there's two things about this. On one side, uh, there's something relieving to know that it's just not me. It's not something personal about me. It's just something that's been given. The anger, the judgments, the addictions, the self-hatred. It's inherited. It's inherited from family, from society. The discriminations, the biases of the mind. Why take something like that personally as if it's only about me? It's just what's been handed down. And something so inspiring about that to see that what we're doing here when we really, really can begin to see clearly how we carry ourselves forward or how the mind carries certain systems forward. And when I do this practice, there can be a kind of liberation that extends out just beyond my life, but for the world that I live in. Our minds are society. There's this quality of carrying forward that is delusion, both on this individual level and collective level. So how to practice with this, how to begin to really see clearly, to have 
that realization of delusion to actualize this quality of Buddhahood? How do we do this on retreat here? I'd like to share with you a, a quote from Ajahn Chah, which I think gives very good directions around this. Ajahn Chah was uh, from the Thai forest tradition, um, so in, in Theravada Buddhism, the Thai forest lineage. Uh, and he says, kind of explains practice. He says, suppose at home you have a pet monkey. Now, monkeys don't stay still for long. They like to jump around and grab onto things. That's how monkeys are. Now you come to the retreat and you see the monkey here. This monkey doesn't stay still either. It jumps around just, just the same. But it doesn't bother you, does it? Why doesn't it bother you? Because you've raised a monkey before. You know what they're like. If you know just one monkey, no matter how many provinces you go to, no matter how many monkeys you see, you won't be bothered by them, will you? This is one who understands monkeys. If we understand monkeys, then we won't become a monkey. If you don't understand monkeys, you may become a monkey yourself. Do you understand? When you see it reaching for this and that, you shout, hey, you get angry. You say, that damn monkey? This is one who doesn't know monkeys. One who knows monkeys sees that the monkey at home and the monkey at the retreat are just the same. Why should you get annoyed by them? When you see what monkeys are like, that's enough. Then you can be at peace. It's just that simple, isn't it? It's just to see that. It's just to see the crazy mind here is the same crazy mind out there. And just to see it without getting bothered by it. That's, that's the essence of being at peace. It's the one who's realizing delusion. And I think this is where the turn is because what I notice, if, if I can, when there's a, a, a strong sense of mindfulness and there can just be a clear labeling of what's going on, all those characters that f float through, oh, worrying, oh, that's all that is, worry. Fear, oh, interesting, oh, excitement. Oh, there's planning, interesting. There's, there's that thought, there's that monkey. Oh, I know that, that's all it is. It's not me, it's not mine, it's just something, it's just an arising in some way. It's like I'm getting in touch with how experience unfolds. I'm stopping being hooked by carrying myself forward using the language of Dogen. And when I touch experience like that, that's when myriad things are merely coming forth. It's just worrying coming forth and experiencing itself. Ah, there's awakening. No longer tangled there. Right? And that's the difference between those two sentences. In the second sentence, 
it's no longer about me. It's just myriad things coming forth and experiencing themselves. Not me coming forward. So simple. I'm not saying it's easy. <laughs> That's why I always like talking about it, right? It's so simple. It's a lot easier talking about it than getting in there. But I, I want to give you actually a little bit more complex example of this. Because if it was just that easy, just to notice and label, we'd be all done with this, wouldn't we? So easy. So one example of maybe a, a little bit more complex situation. I, I was uh, I was on a month long retreat. It was a concentration retreat. So there was a there's a lot of value put on stillness and, and silence, and it was something that was really being cultivated to really allow the mind to collect in these particular ways. And it was the first it was the the first sit of the day in the early morning, and um, I was having such a sweet sit. You know how those sits are; just the mind was really calm and collected and concentrated, and it felt very pleasurable. And then um, somebody got out their notebook. And they had a pencil, and it sounded like the w loudest pencil in the world. <laughs> and they're sitting so close to me. And they would be writing, it sounded so loudly and so like frantically. And then they'd flip a page, and then they would write some more really loudly. You could hear the scratching of the pencil. Then they'd flip a page again. <laughs> and I was thinking, okay, Brian, just, just relax. Just, it's going to pass. It's going to pass. And it so felt like it wasn't <laughs> passing. It just kept on going on and on and on. And I so wish I could tell you that I had this profound sense of equanimity towards it. And I just was like being with it like any great yogi would be. And uh, it was definitely far from the opposite. The amount of irritation in my body was unbelievable. And I was having these fantasies of like <laughs> going up to them and just saying, what are you doing? Knock it off. But I didn't do that. That was the one saving grace. <laughs> I didn't let my uh, irritation get to me. And so, um, and then there was the turn. And so this turn is really, to me, the turn back into practice. So here I am, um, basically having an emotional breakdown because somebody's writing in a notebook. <laughs> and that was actually good to notice too, like, Brian, you might want to take a look at this. You know, you're, you're falling apart because somebody's writing in a notebook, you know. If you want to end your suffering, this might be a good place to begin. <laughs> and so it was, in, within that was the acknowledging, oh, here's suffering. Here's the monkey. Here's the crazy mind. And that is the gateway into practice rather than the gateway out of practice. Because so much when difficulty arises, it feels like, this is the impediment, this is the hindrance. As Max said, a hindrance stops becoming a hindrance when we bring our practice to it, it becomes the gateway. So that was the first step, was to see, oh, suffering? And then one word, the one word that I, that I find so helpful if I can get to, yes. And what I mean by the yes is, yes, this too is my practice. If I can just remember that one word, Oh, just that. Yes. 
And then for me, when my mind is that hooked, simply being mindful is not the first thing that I do because the mind is too hooked. Where I go to when they're suffering is compassion, self-compassion. Self-compassion is this sense of, wow, this is difficult, ouch, this hurts, and I care about it. Because then what happens is the heart softens around that experience. And so I wanna point out what I didn't do. I might've done this initially, but not in the act of compassion, as I didn't minimize it. And this was like the perfect um, time that my mind could have easily minimized this experience, right? Somebody's writing it, writing a notebook, and I'm freaking out. <laughs> I could be like, so often what our minds can do is, Brian, get over this. You know, people are suffering so much more in this world, and here you are having a hard time with this. I want to point out that's not self-compassion. That's minimizing what's going on, and I'm not touching the suffering. It's actually not meeting it. It's trying to rationalize one's way out of it, which is not a, a touching into. And then with the softening, then what started to arise was more of a curiosity. Oh, interesting, Here, here's the grating, here's the suffering. Let me see what it's like to be with this. What do I notice? And then it's the curiosity. Oh, there, there it is, there's hearing, there's a sound. Hearing is happening. Oh, and it's unpleasant. <laughs> oh, okay, and when it's unpleasant, it feels like this in the body. So I wanna point out a couple things about this. I'm not trying to figure out why it's unpleasant, what happened in my upbringing around pencils and notebooks and things like that. I just need to know that it's unpleasant in this moment. Ah, oh, that's, that's all that's going on right now. Okay, so it's very unpleasant. Oh, and there, there's the reactivity. Oh, I don't like it. There's the story that this shouldn't be happening on a retreat. And that, that whole story can be so convincing because I, I feel like I sh I, the world should be a certain way. But the thing is, is that it's not. And really, who's suffering from it? I am. And so it's noticing that reactivity, that hook of desperately wanting a certain world. And then it's just being with that, just feeling the unpleasantness, noticing that there's an unpleasantness to it and there's a reactivity to it, noticing that. And then eventually, it was, the, the, the reactivity could dissipate some, not all of it, but some that I could simply be in that space and touching it in this way that allowed for a sense of really just myriad things coming forward and experiencing themselves. The myriad things of an unpleasant sound, the myriad things of irritation, the myriad things of a tight body, Oh, they're just coming forward and experiencing themselves now. Just this. So you might have heard within this description of navigating this, of coming into mindfulness, that I'm emphasizing getting in touch, getting close to one's experience in a, this particular way of being mindful of it. 
And this is uh, a, a kind of language that you find in in Zen. It's the language of intimacy. This is actually a j- Japanese word, uh, shinsetsu, which uh, has this quality. It's, um, uh, I think the connotations of it is this sense of having intimate connections, like Robert Aiken Roshi um, gives the example of for example, if you were to bring a gift to your hosts at their home in, in Japan, they would say, you're very shinsetsu. You're very warm. You're very kind in that way. There's a, a quality of closeness there, a warm closeness that's there. And this word is often equated with this quality of wisdom or awakening in, in Zen. And at least in a poetic way, we can find a connection in, in early Buddhism. Uh, for example, the, the word for ignorance, which is really the root of our suffering, is avidya, which is, this uh, comes from vidya, which is knowing. The A negates that, so it's this quality of not knowing, the, the, the ignorance of not seeing. And Ajahn Suchito, who is uh, actually a, a, a monastic of uh, Ajahn Chah's, I think, explains avidya as one way of defining it is being out of touch being out of touch with the way things are and what i like about this is that if if being out of touch is the problem our task is to be in touch to have this intimacy with our experience this closeness to it in this particular way i was talking about of noticing that this is this experience is unpleasant the body tightens it's an unpleasant sound, and then the mind is reacting against it, saying it doesn't like it, and, and to really begin to become familiar with that experience. And for some of you, you might have this taste, this taste of intimacy, where when we quiet, it feels like experience comes closer. As the poet Jane Hirschfield uh, says at one of the beginning of her poems, which I appreciate, she says, only when I am quiet for a long time and do not speak, do the objects of my life draw near. Have you felt that? The drawing near of the breeze, the drawing near of the breath, the drawing near of your ache, and your knee, even probably the drawing near of all those thoughts and emotions, touching them, getting to know them, realize actually what's going on. And it's true, probably in, you know, in in Zen, sometimes you find a kind of irreverent language, which I actually appreciate. It shows a kind of playfulness and points us though at the same time into this practice. Like there's a, uh, uh, this Japanese nun, uh, Rengetsu, who wrote poetry, who uh, in her wonderful way describes this and contrasts it, maybe even in an irreverent way. She says, clad in black robes, 
I should have no attractions to the shapes and sense of this world. But how can I keep my vows gazing at today's crimson maple leaves? Do you hear that quality of her heart opening just around the crimson maple, maple leaves? That sense of touching in just to that, the immediacy of that experience. And what I'm beginning to venture into, which you probably hear, is this second sentence that I wanted to get to, that this sentence that I've already been implying, that this, this definition that Dogen gives us of awakening, that it's when myriad things come forth and experience themselves, that's, that's the taste of awakening. And I, what I'd like to do is I, I want to point out that and say a few words about this to show that awakening in the way that Dogen's talking about is something that you can taste here on this retreat, that you probably are tasting on this retreat every day. There's many moments of these kinds of experiences arising. And I think it's really important to see that and to see that this, this is what's going on in, in your meditation practice, that awakening is not some far off distant thing. And this is one of the things that Dogen really wants to dispel, that awakening is, is, is far off and somehow beyond us, but rather it's something that we immediately touch within our practice. And at the same time, I'll just be honest with you, it's tricky for me because I, I also don't want to cheapen awakening as if Awakening is just a moment of mindfulness. In some ways, that's true. But there's also, I think, great depth to the potential of these minds and hearts. And that's why I'm reminded of a, another sentence in this same paragraph that I'm speaking to of when Dogen talks about there are those who continue realizing beyond realization. That there might be a taste of realization or a taste of awakening. And then there's tastes of realization beyond that realization. So accessible, yet reminding ourselves of that there is great depth to the potential of these hearts and minds. So how, how to get a taste of these moments? And some of it is, you know, I've already spoken to, but I just wanna give some other ways of tasting into this or sensing into this. And to tie it into Theravada Buddhism. Some of you who are familiar with kind of the Vipassana world or Theravada know that there's this uh, discourse by the Buddha, the four foundations of mindfulness or these four arenas uh, to practice mindfulness in, which is uh, the discourse that is uh, so foundational for much of the understanding of of mindfulness, not only in a, an, in, in a spiritual context like this, but in the secular context. And the third foundation of mindfulness, the Buddha talks about being uh, contemplating the mind as the mind. And then he explains, and how practitioners does a practitioner contemplate mind as mind? Here a practitioner notices um, a mind affected by hatred as a mind affected by hatred. 
And notice is a mind unaffected by hatred as a mind unaffected by hatred. Or you could say um, aversion is another word for hatred. And he goes through these three qualities of reactivity, the, the greed, hatred, and delusion, which could be seen as the mind's reactivity of grasping, pushing away aversion, or checking out. And so much of mindfulness is to notice when, is, when are those happening, which is, that's when the, we're, we're, the, the, um, we're carrying the self forward. You could say that's the same thing. That's what Buddha, the Dogen's talking about. To carry oneself forward is to be lost in reactivity. Yet myriad things coming forth and experiencing themselves is just when there's no reactivity in the mind. Can you notice those moments during the day? Can you notice the moment where there's just one moment of feeling the breath? There's not wanting something more. There's not not wanting something to happen. There's not the checking out. It's just feeling the breath. It's feeling the feet in walking meditation. Them, as, as Max said, I really appreciated this language, them being like sponges of awareness, just feeling the feet, feeling the breeze of the AC, <laughs> the air conditioning. A moment of feeling sleepy. There's no pushing or reactivity around it. It's just this. Myriad things coming forth and experiencing themselves. It's just sleepiness. Can you taste that and see that as the sense of freedom? No reactivity. And the tricky thing about that is to notice it because we bypass those. The things that we always like to see is the reactivity. There's many moments of no reactivity. And what's important about these moments, when you notice a moment of reactivity, a lot of times what people do is they become suspicious. Ah, it can't be. There's got to be. There's got to be some reactivity. You know, I'm a pretty messed up person. <laughs> There's got to be a lot of reactivity here. <laughs> and, and then it's like we're looking for something rather than just what's going on right now. Don't worry, there's realization. There's, you know, there's, we, we keep on realizing beyond this realization. So it continues. But just to taste that. It's sometimes tasting the newness, the uniqueness of this moment. As the Zen poet Ryo Khan points out, he says, there is a bamboo grove in front of my hut. Every day I see it a thousand times, yet never tire of it. There is a bamboo grove in front of my hut. Every day I see it a thousand times, yet never tire of it. Every day I feel the breath a thousand times, yet never tire of it. Every day I feel the sensations on the bottoms of my feet, yet never tire of it. Because each moment, each moment, it's a new arising. It's a new bamboo grove. It's a new breath. It's a new sensation that arises and passes away. Just when the mind touches that for a moment to savor it. Sometimes what I'll do is I'll use the phrase, just this. 
or just as it is. There's a, a Japanese word, nyoze, just as it is. Oh, just this, just hearing. Oh, just sensation, oh, just the breath, just this, and touching that world of just this. Feeling the relief maybe of that, the splendor of such simplicity. And then on a more nuanced level, and I think this is really quite forward, uh, qu quite important. I mean, hopefully you'll see that we carry ourselves forward in all kinds of ways, all kinds of crazy ways. And sometimes it does feel like, at least in this mind, sometimes it can feel like when I really start to know this mind, how, how constantly it can feel like it's happening. So another way I, I taste into this or I touch into this is the times on retreat where I'm really carrying the self forward, where I'm really freaking out about the pencil on the paper and that sound, and I'm overwhelmed by being irritated. It's like, wow, there's the self really being carried forward. To times where it's just less so, still carrying the self forward, but it's not as strong. It's lighter. So sometimes not just keeping it in terms of if it's present or absent, or when is it strong or when is it weak, so we can feel the gradations of this and feel the relief when it's not as strong and feel the curiosity when it's really strong because that's the gateway, the gateway into seeing clearly. So I've, I've described some of this quality of awakening or these tastes of just this, using this language of intimacy, of coming closer to our experience. And I, I do want to point out, I think this is the tricky thing of learning um, a spiritual practice is that that's just one way of describing um, the taste of this. Sometimes the language of intimacy really works for some practitioners and not others. For some of you, really the language that helps you go further in your practice is not one of intimacy, but really in some ways the opposite, the language of spaciousness. Have you ever noticed that is that sometimes it feels like there's more mindfulness or there's more of a quality of, of presence when it feels like there's more of a quality of a, spa a spaciousness around an experience. And so I also want to affirm that, that that too can be a way of getting a sense of what it is to allow myriad things to come forth and experience themselves. And you, you hear this teaching in various places, like for example, again, in early Buddhism, after the Buddha's son, Rahula, got ordained, uh, one of the teachings, or an excerpt from one of the teachings that the Buddha gives to his son, he says to his son, Rahula, Rahula, develop a mind like space. When you develop a mind like space, arisen contacts of like and dislike do not take hold of the mind and stay. 
Rahula space does not settle anywhere. In the same manner, develop a mind like space. When you develop a mind like space, arisen contacts of like and dislike do not take hold of the mind and stay. That space-like quality of mind that can allow right, those clouds of liking and disliking to simply pass on through. And you might notice moments like that where there's just a little bit more of allowing the wanting and not wanting to pass on through and not getting as hooked. So again, just these two sentences, to carry yourself forward and experience myriad things, that's delusion. That myriad things come forth and experience themselves is awakening. Yeah, so may our, our practice of this on this retreat lead to the liberation of all beings. Thank you. Just uh, sit for a moment here. 